0: the pleasure to have each and every one of you with us. My name is Pastor Tim, and I've got the great privilege of opening up God's Word this morning. And if you haven't been at church or you're new to church, you pick the right Sunday to be at church as we open a new series out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Grab your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament, right after the book of Psalms and Proverbs, is this 12-chapter book that we are going to be studying for the next 12 weeks. If you have difficulty still finding this book, uh, turn your attention to the table of contents I want you there we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 and we're going to study over these next 12 weeks what Herman Melville the author of Moby Dick said upon reading this book was the honest, most honest book ever written We're going to explore it, we're going to seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. But before we do, would you take a moment with me and bow for a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this great opportunity we have to come into your house and to sing praises to you. I thank you for our worship team and their diligence in serving us and leading us, reminding us that you are the God who is praiseworthy, uh, that you are the God who is holy Uh, That You are so different and so uh, far from us. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yet, You sought that it was right for us to have a relationship with You. So You sent Jesus Christ uh, to be our Savior. And we thank You for that. And out of gratitude, we long to do what He tells us to do. We want to model our lives after Him. And so I pray, Lord, as we open this book, that we would take what we've learned and apply it uh, to our lives. Lord, I thank you for other Christians who are doing uh, this very thing in other churches. I think of the two closest churches to us here, uh, Harvest Bible Chapel and Christ Community Church. And I pray, Lord, that their times together would be sweet, that the preaching from their pulpits would be uh, powerful, and that you would move in those congregations. I pray, Lord, that their impact would be uh, growing and uh, have uh, massive implications in the community around us. Thank you for their partnership, Lord. And I pray for their time together. I also thank, Lord, of the six other campuses of Village Bible Church that are meeting right now. And I thank you for my brothers who are going to pick up this book. And are going to share it with the family that we love. And I pray, Lord, you would continue to use Village Bible Church in awesome ways. Thank you for the impact that you've allowed us to have. Not only here, but through our missionaries all throughout the world. World. So wherever, Lord, you uh, have us, I pray that you would use us in powerful ways to continue to change lives. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to this book, I pray that we would listen. I pray that any distractions that would keep us from hearing it uh, would be taken away, that we could hear what you have to say. Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would fall fresh on us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Some of the greatest books ever written are not works of fiction or works about another person's life. In fact, they are diaries. My favorite presidential biography are the memoirs, the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Reading from a person's own mind, their own heart, what they've put on paper without any translation from another is something really, really awesome. When we talk about diaries or memoirs, of course the diary of a young girl, Anne Frank, comes to mind. A powerful intimate storyline never did she think in writing it that it would be read by millions upon millions of people generations later but she wrote it just speaking of her own experiences her own intimate details of her own life and what it was like to be a Jewish girl under Nazi occupation It's raw. It's personal. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to read. Though it is a mandatory reading in our school system, we have come to realize this isn't something that's easy to swallow. Because we are brought to a place of reality. No matter what we're living or where we're at, the reality of evil and the uh, reality of what she experienced is more than even the reader can bear. Like the diary of Anne Frank, Ecclesiastes is that kind of book. It's raw, it's intimate, it's personal, it's altogether negative. It's hard to read, it's hard to swallow. You walk away asking, what is the purpose of all this? If this is what life entails, then I might as well just give up. And give in and yet we, we are going to learn with each of these weeks studying this old testament book is we are going to receive a massive dose of reality real life is going to sink in each sunday as we look at this passage of scripture and so with the time i have this morning with the opening verses before us and as a way of introduction i want to break the sermon down in three ways and you can follow along number one I want to look at the man who wrote these words. Number two, I want to understand the message that he's trying to convey. And then number three, I want to ask the question, what's the meaning of it all? And I want to try to accomplish that with the time I have. So let's move quickly through this. Number one, I want to look at the man who wrote these words. Now, right away in Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in jerusalem no name is given just this description first of all he's a preacher what what is meant there is not that he's a preacher a pastor in a church but that he's an individual who is standing amongst amongst an assembly of people to share about something that is near and dear something that is on his heart it is the ancient uh, picture of a ted talk this individual is going to stand up amongst a group of people and share about what they've been thinking about. They, he then says is the son of David. He's the king in Jerusalem. We have no doubt in our mind that the author of this Book is King Solomon himself. Now, there have been many people who have speculated on whether or not this is King Solomon because it doesn't say King Solomon. But I want you to know every verse, every phrase, every word of this book screams King Solomon. Let me explain. Number one, he was the son of David. Number two, he was king in Jerusalem. Number three, he was a man who had built great things. and You're going to see that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Number four, he speaks as a man who was given great knowledge and wisdom from God. That explains Solomon right away, who was given wisdom by God himself. And number five, Solomon was a man who deprived his eyes nothing he desired. And the book of Ecclesiastes speaks to that fact over and over again. So King Solomon is the author. He's the man. Now we need to know a little bit about this man. Biographies of this man are three places in the Old Testament. Write these passages down. You will learn about Solomon and his life, and there's a lot to it in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11. 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11. 2 Chronicles 1 through 9. 2 Chronicles 1 through 9. And then we are told of his birth in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 24 and 25. Here's the basics of what we need to know and I'll let Solomon introduce himself in a moment, but Solomon is the second son of King David and his wife Bathsheba. His older brother had died in infancy in direct correlation to the sin his mom and dad had of adultery and it was the punishment for their sin. In 2nd Samuel chapter 2 verses 12 through Uh, chapter 12 verses 24 and 25 we are told he is born and that the truth one singular truth that the bible writers want us to know is that he was loved by God his name was Jedediah; that was his nickname Solomon was his given name but he was loved by God and he was loved by God and purposed by God to do great things in his life. And God said, I'm going to give you everything you need to accomplish what I have purposed for you. Now, I want to take a time out for a moment and say, that wasn't just true of Solomon, but that's true of every one of us here today. When you were born, God said, I love you. And God said, I have given you everything you need to bring me glory and honor and to do good for the world around you. And I'm going to equip you, I'm going to resource you with everything. And so he knit you together and and me together in our mother's womb. And he purposed for us, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, things that he had for us in advance to do good things. And He's equipped us with everything under heaven so that you and I, who are loved by God, might bring glory and honor back to God and we might do good to the world around us. And some of us are thinking, well, no, I missed that opportunity. I wasn't given all of that. And yet, as we see in the life of Solomon, we're just like him. Loved by God and resourced by God to do what God calls us to do. Now, right away you say, but wait a minute. Solomon and I are very very different people and you're right Solomon was the prince He lived a privileged life He had everything the best of educations the best clothing and possessions the best food the best opportunities were there And yet as you look at the life of Solomon you see his life was really messed up Even though he had a dad who was known to be a man after God's own heart, his house life, his home life was a wreck. And so I want you to imagine for a moment Solomon coming to your small group. Our small groups opened up this last week. Dozens of houses, dozens of groups got together. And this week they went around and introduced themselves and got to know one another. And I want you to see this new guy come up to the house. He's driving the nicest of cars. He gets out. He's good looking. He's wearing the nicest of clothing. And he steps into the family room. He sits down and it's his time around the circle to share who he is, what he's all about. So he says, hey, my name is Solomon. And right away, everyone says, Hi, Solomon. And I need to tell you a couple things. I'm I'm a part of a royal family. So right away, that separates him from the rest of the group, right? And he says, I I, I grew up in a mixed family. And there's a lot of mixed families in our day and age. And so that's no surprise. But then he says, but uh, my dad, you know, it was quite a mixed family. My dad was married eight different times. Okay, people start counting. That's a lot more than what's seemingly normal. Uh, I'm the second love child of my parents. Uh, my brother died in his infancy. And so I'm kind of the the, the picture of my parents' romantic zeal for one another. Uh, but that relationship's kind of ugly. It was an affair. In fact, uh, my father killed my mother's uh, first husband. Had him killed. Um, and so it's kind of been an ugly situation. We, we kind of, people talk about our family behind our backs. Well, Solomon, how many, how many siblings do you have? Well, I have lots of siblings. When your dad has eight wives, you got a lot of siblings. So I got full siblings, I've got half siblings, I got step siblings, and it's a mess. In fact, one day, uh, when I was younger, I had a brother who raped a sister of mine. And as a result of that, another brother avenging the honor of my sister had the other brother killed. And so now people are really getting uneasy going, wait a minute, we just wanted your name, where you're from, how long you've been attending Village Bible Church. Okay? And he's like, and then my dad, you know, if I can just continue on for a moment, my dad had a son that was favored. It wasn't me. I wasn't my dad's favorite. And that favorite son, because of my dad's lackluster or laissez-faire approach to leading his family, became so angry that he tried to take away his throne and kill my father. Now, one of the guys who likes awkward situations, the group's like, tell us more. Yeah, tell us more. The small group leader's like, wait a minute, this is going off the rails here, okay? And so he says, but after everything was said and done, I was the one who became king. Kind of like I'm president, I'm prime minister, okay? So the group's sitting there, the leader of the group's saying, maybe I should just hand the group over to Solomon, okay? And Solomon says, And when I became king, the Lord through a prophet asked if there was anything I would desire. And I could have pursued possessions and pleasure and prestige, but I asked for wisdom and discernment. And so second to Jesus Christ, I'm the wisest person to have ever lived, which the whole group now says, Now I'm never answering a question because this guy's going to have all the right answers. And so I'm not going to respond. But he goes on. And, and, and he begins to talk about what this wisdom brought. It brought a life of greatness. And so for all these years, I have been known for my accomplishments. As king of all of Israel, guys, I resided over the most peace and prosperity Israel would ever experience. Uh, People were put to jobs. I employed more people than any president would ever be able to boast. Some of my projects are renowned all over the world. Uh, In fact, I built a temple that my dad wanted to build but didn't get a chance to do. It took me 46 years to build this temple for God, and the day that It was inaugurated or dedicated. Grown men cried at its sight. It was so magnificent. And God sent fire down from heaven as a personification that His stamp of approval was all over this. I built these things and they were amazing. And because I was so wise, statesmen and stateswomen, even the queen of Sheba came and sought my advice and sought my direction and discernment on all manners of issues. And so all of the group is riveted by all this is saying. And then one of the ladies of the group says, okay, you're a pretty special guy. Where's your wife? And Solomon pauses. Well, you're married, right? And he says, yeah. Well, where is she? Well, I didn't know which one to bring. The group says, what do you mean which one? Now Solomon's feeling a little bit uneasy. And he says, you know what? Let me, let me just tell you, I'm not going to answer that question. I'll give you a riddle. And he says this, I could have breakfast, lunch, and dinner for an entire year with each of my wives and after a year I will have not had a second one with them well Al Gonnerman the mathematician in the group is starting to carry the one niner he's sitting there going he leans over to Jan that's a thousand women and Solomon's feeling uneasy he goes oh that's a little excessive I had 700 wives three hundred concubines now he's feeling really awkward and so he pivots right away and he says let's forget about that i've written three books three books i'm an author okay people want to know what i have to say and they say when i was a young man i wrote this book called song of solomon a book about love romance man bestseller people loved it oprah made it book of the book of the month was great. Man, you can't put that thing down. It's, it's, it's really a page turner. But then I got a little older and, and a little wiser and I wrote this book about resourceful thinking and living. It's called Proverbs. I wrote it, dedicated it to my children that they would live lives that would honor God and be wise. But I recently, in my old age, he says, wrote a book. I call it the Book of Ecclesiastes. I call it my book of regrets. You see, I've lived life to the fullest and I've come to realize that there's a lot that I regret. And he pauses. And everybody takes it in the small group. This Solomon who has shown up to the group, what a life. What a person. And then they got to go and they've got to describe to the people that aren't in the group, Solomon. Hey, we got this new guy in our small group. His name's Solomon. He's an older gentleman. How would you describe him? Someone would say that's not in the group. And this is how you would describe him. He has the intellect of Stephen Hawking, the charisma of Frank Sinatra, the leadership prowess of JFK, and the debauchery Of hugh hefner merge those two together that's the new guy in our small group okay and he's written a book and you're asking the question today why in the world would a church like village bible church dedicate itself to a book written by that kind of guy and the answer is because it's in god's book and so god has given us this book for a reason to study it and to know it. And I'm here to tell you that as crazy and as messed up as Solomon may have been, as messed up as his family is, God used his life and he wants to use your messed up life and your dysfunctional family and your dysfunctional uh, experiences. He wants to use it for a purpose and God's purpose for Solomon was to write a book about regrets, the cautionary tale of living a life apart from God. And so, there's the man. Let's look at his message. The book opens up here, and it opens this way. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. It goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there such a thing of which can be said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? What a dose of reality. The opening verses of this book do not lighten anyone's day. What you're going to get is more of the same in the weeks to come. This book, this book is by far the most earthy of all of the Scriptures. What I mean by that, it is an altogether human book. It's utilitarian. He's going to talk about pots and pans, pants, pain, pleasure, and purpose. And he's going to talk about how that impacts everyday life. When you read this book, you will no doubt get to a place where you're like, yeah, yeah. Yep, been there, done that. This book is a book that brings lots of questions. But the Bible isn't foreign to asking lots of questions. One of the most questioning books in all the Scriptures is the book of Job. Job brings a lot of pain and sorrow and questions. And and we look at Job and we're like, man, what is going on? But at least in Job, God speaks from heaven and He addresses and answers the questions that befuddle us. In Ecclesiastes, God does not speak. It is all one old man lamenting at how bad life really is. So Solomon's message to us, you live, you die, you will be forgotten when you are dead and gone. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Okay, but to understand what he's trying to prove and I, there is great salvation if you will at the end of all of this it, we have to look at some words the first word we need to look at is mentioned no less than five times in verse 2 it is the Greek, uh, Greek word, Hebrew word, hebel. It's used 38 times. It is vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That which is translated vanity is the Hebrew word hebel. He's going to use it again and again. First of all, it is a word that speaks of a vapor. We're just days away from getting up in the morning and having the vapor come off of our breath because of the cold air that will be hitting us this fall. I want you to think about that. I want you to try to grab that vapor, that that mist that comes from your mouth. I want you to try to hold it. I want you to try to contain it. I want you to try to watch where it goes and you're going to have difficulty because it's there and then it's gone. James must have been reading the book of Ecclesiastes when he said that life is a vapor or a mist. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. So Hebel means the shortness of life. It's there, the fleetingness of life. It's gone. But number two, it means to be meaningless or vain. Hebel describes literally the unproductive activity that yields nothing of value. What Solomon is saying to us today is that life is unproductive and it leads to nothing of value. That's a sobering thought. What he's saying is is that life, metaphorically, is vain. It is a life that is lived in utter futility. To put it in layman's terms, life is meaningless, pointless, worthless, frustrating, because it is frail and fleeting. What he's saying here is that there isn't much to life. One commentator said it this way, life is like driving in a cul-de-sac round and round we go when i first dated amanda my first date with amanda i, I picked her up from her house she lived in the san Susi neighborhood of aurora how many are familiar with san Susie and neighborhood uh, san Susi neighborhood of aurora if you don't know it it's a massive subdivision where there's only one exit and you got to find it And the developers, I think, still find great joy They've got a camera somewhere Because there's people still trying to get out of the neighborhood So I have this wonderful date with this young lady And I leave, it took me one hour To get out of the neighborhood No GPS, no phones, no navigation Just round and round we went And there was a lot of time for me to think I'm like, she's beautiful, but I'm not sure she's worth it I'm never getting out of here What Solomon says is it's Sansouci, just driving around, missing the exit, over and over again. It's the roundabout. You just keep driving the roundabout, never exiting, and when you do, you're dead. This is life, alright? And what I'm learning, I'm 46 years of age, at around 46, Ecclesiastes starts to make sense. If you're under the age of 40, this is the dumbest book ever written. Because you're like, no, life is great. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to find the love of my life. We're going to buy a house. We're going to have kids. We're going to get a dog. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And you're now on the second half, the back nine of the golf course of life. And you're like, been there, done that. And to really sum it up, just, just to be really realistic with you, at 46 years of age, there's nothing new in business I'm going to do. got to be honest with you, I'm not sure there's much more in church I'm going to do with regards to life. I mean, the years that I've spent in church, we preach, we teach, we lead people, we do it again. In my catering world, we feed people, clean up, feed people again, clean up, feed people again, clean up. Then I get into family life. I've had 46 birthdays, 46 Christmases. I'm about to celebrate my 25th wedding anniversary. Amanda's like, been there, done that, okay? So the things I have left, if really the milestones I have left, just to be honest with you, to see the high school graduation, of my two youngest sons, maybe college for each of the boys, um, them getting married, and then them bringing kids into the world. And then at some point, Tim or Amanda's gonna pass away, and then I'm gonna die. There's not a lot left. You're like, wait a minute, Tim. Are you going through a nervous breakdown? But if you look at life, and you're just really honest about life, guys, there ain't much to it. And so what the author says is, if you don't believe me, let me give you a couple examples. Look at the text. Some of you are like, get some, but all some help, okay? So he talks about work, okay? And he says, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So he's like, listen, I, I worked for the company all these years. Forty years I've worked for the company. I've worked for the school. I worked for the factory. I worked in the office. And my last day comes and they bring me a Walmart cake. Hey, happy retirement. We got you a balloon. Here, we got together, everybody put in two dollars and got you a gift. There's only four people in the office, that's eight dollars. So you've dedicated your entire life to this place. You're gonna spend more time at work than anywhere else. And what do you have to show after all the blood, sweat and tears? Some years ago, I celebrated my 25th anniversary as the general manager of 5B's Catering, a company owned by my parents. I have taken it from a ma pa organization to a very large catering. Man, I've done well. And I kind of shared it with my dad in passing, Dad, it's been 25 years. He goes, oh, son, happy 25th anniversary. Take a couple pork chops home on the way out, <laughs> okay? What do you get for your toil? You pour all this time into work, you get nothing, right? If we're really honest, nothing. He moves on. And he says, okay, then we've got a generation coming and a generation going. And the idea here is each generation thinks they're going to figure it out. Each generation, man, they're going to fix the world's problems. Boy, listen, millennials, you guys bought into this. Okay? Okay. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. Man, you guys came out guns-barreling. Man, those guys were idiots before us. We got this. World hunger, gone. World troubles, gone. We're going to create a non-for-profit and we're going to take care of this. Just wait till you're 40. You're going to be too tired to fix anything. At times, it's going to be hard to clip your own toenails. We're getting real. Right? Okay? Okay, uh, I'm, uh, this is the third service, it's off the hook. Okay? Generation's gonna come, we're gonna fix it. They don't, right? Hey, have you ever noticed this? Now I'm gonna get real, real personal. Every election is the one that matters, right? How many times are we gonna have the election of a lifetime? I've had like 47 lifetimes now. It's all the same. The opposition hates the one that's in power, does everything in their power to get rid of them, and round and round we go. Round and round we go. Nothing's new. Nothing under the sun is different. So he goes to weather. And weather comes, and the weather goes, but nothing changes. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. Here we go. It's, listen, it's Nick at night, over and over again, rerun after rerun after rerun we drove into the the church parking lot today amanda and i and and i noticed in the the bliss woods i said oh honey look the leaves are falling and she's like are you okay the leaves fall all the time it's september there tim the leaves fall and i'm trying to get through life just excited that the leaves are falling We're being told we're going to experience the worst weather that we've had. A quadruple Al Nina, Al Martina, Al something, la this, la that, okay? And I'm reading this article about how bad it's going to be. And this is what they said. Winds are going to be bad, snow, cold. And I'm like, have you never been in a Chicago winter? That's what we always have. So weather's going to come and go. Then he says this, and this is so profound. All the streams, verse 7, run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The idea here is there's a lot of activity that produces nothing. Life is you are busy, but nothing gets filled. Nothing fills up. Now, right away... You're like, well, this is terrible. This is dumb. The Bible's stupid. Nobody thinks like this. I, I like what the world says. The world says that we've got purpose. The world says we've got a lot of good happening. The world speaks so nice. And the the church and, and the Bible is so pessimistic. Let me tell you something. You go through songs that you listen to. You'll see Ecclesiastes all over the place. Let me let me give you an example. Rolling stones. I get no satisfaction. I try, I try, I try, but I can't get it. Let's move on. You too. I've kissed honey lips. I've felt the healing in her fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. I've spoken with the tongue of angels. I've held the hand of a devil. It warms me in the night. I was cold as stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He's talking about life. He's talking about love. I'm on this this a uh, journey to find something. And I can't find it that's ecclesiastes for those of a different generation. Let's go with kelly clarkson Kelly clarkson said she looked at her life and she said I didn't like where it was going So she pens these words i'm going to spread my wings. I'm going to learn how to fly though It's not easy to tell you goodbye. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take a chance I'm going to make a change and i'm going to break away break away from what the monotony and the mundane nature of life if there's anybody who nails this it's our friend paul simon and he says this god only knows god makes his plans the information's unavailable to the mortal man we're working our jobs we collect our pay we believe we're gliding down the highway when in fact we're slip slip sliding Away. Carrie Fisher. The actress who would play Princess Leia. A handful of teenagers just woke up. She said this. Life is a cruel joke. And I'm the punchline. The world is talking about this. And the world is saying life is meaningless and so what the world does church is the world does what Solomon does they don't let any desire leave them So they fill their lives with all of this stuff. Work, I'm going to give my life to work. Education, I'm going to give my life to my education. Family, I'm going to give my life to family. Sex and pleasure, I'm going to give it to that. Drinking and doing drugs, I'm going to give it to that. Uh, Hobbies, possessions, I'm going to fill my life with this. And like the seas of the world, a lot of activity, and it never is filled. Like Mick Jagger says... We never find the satisfaction that we're looking for. And some of you right now are looking and trying to fill the meaning of life saying another another house, another car, another boat, another person, another wife, another job, another degree. And we're filling our lives with all of these things. Thinking in and of themselves. That will bring purpose. That will bring meaning. That will bring happiness. And Solomon says, I've been there. I've done that. And listen, what good is it for you to do all of those things and just to die? And just to die. Jesus said this, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And some of you are trying to gain the whole world and in the process you're losing your soul. And this is the life that Solomon says is meaningless. And here's how we know. He uses another phrase. He's going to use it 30 times in the book. The phrase is under the sun. Under the sun. And if you, listen, you will walk away completely and utterly depressed if you don't put that phrase in the equation. Life is meaningless under the sun. Life is meaningless under the sun. If this earth and this life is all that you're about, your work, your play, your family, your kids, your education, your paycheck, if that is all that life is, if the totality of your life is the, in the here and now, you will one day die, people will be sad, and they'll move on with their lives, and you'll be forgotten. You'll be forgotten. And you will endure an eternity in a place called hell. And for a person that God gave the right to live on purpose for Him, you have lived an utterly meaningless life. So gain the world. Gain the world. Make all the money you can. Have all the sex you can. Do all the drugs you can. Get all the possessions you can. Get all the promotions you can. Get all the degrees you can. Do it. And at the end of that sad, meaningless life, you will breathe your last and it will be over. And Solomon says, that's a perspective that I'm writing from. That's where I'm coming from. Life is meaningless, church without God. Let me say that again. Life is meaningless without God. And so God in His grace, God in His love, God in His mercy looked down at the lot of man and woman and saw us living utterly meaningless lives. And when the time was right, God sent Jesus to be born into this world. And he sent Jesus to be born of this world so that we could live life under the Son through the power and provision of the Son of God. And when we live life under the Son, S-U-N, with the Son, S-O-N, he brings meaning, he brings purpose, he brings joy. Now, do we still long for all those things? We do. But what it means is we now, instead of those being an end, a means to an end, they now become things that we place on the altar of Jesus' throne. Our jobs, our families, our children, our marriages, our possessions, our pleasures, we set them at the feet of Jesus and we say, Jesus. I want to do these things. I want to have these things according to your ways and according to your will. And so the whole premise of this book is don't live a life that is meaningless. Find God. Follow God. He says at the end of chapter 12, the whole matter is that you and I would follow God. And we would stop chasing after the wind. And that we would begin living life, as one book says, backwards. With death in mind. Knowing that Jesus is the only one who comes to give us life and to give it all abundance. You live life apart from God, you will live an utterly meaningless life. You live life with Jesus. And my friends, you'll live the good life. And that, What we want. Amen? J.I. Packer put it this way, and I'll close with this. He says, What are we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What is the best thing in life? To know God. What in humans gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of Him. The good life is a life that is lived in relationship with the Almighty. And maybe today you're not living in that and I want you to know yesterday that life without God was meaningless. I don't care what you accomplished. It was meaningless. You will come. You will go. You will be forgotten. Whatever you built, someone will take over. It's all meaningless. But when you give your life to Jesus, your life carries meaning not only in this life, but in for the life to come. So give your life to Jesus, follow Him, and what Jesus says is, I've come to give you life, to give it in all abundance. Jesus said, I want to give you the good life. Amen?